Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and today's guest is Sterling Barrett, the founder of Crew. In this episode, Sterling talked about building a fashion business out of New Orleans, his mobile retail strategy, and how to spend money wisely as a growing brand. Hope you enjoy it. Sterling. Hey, Hillary. So you're coming to New York from New Orleans, where Crew is based. Is that right? Yes. So take us back to, to when Crew launched a few years ago. About uh, where were you in your career, and and what inspired you to start start the brand? Uh, you sell glasses and sunglasses. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, prescription eyewear and sun eyewear. Great. Um, well, uh, no. So it, it really starts in New Orleans. I I was a photographer and went away to school to study fine art. And after um, finishing college in Dallas, really had the opportunity to either move to New York or kind of back back to New Orleans. And I chose to head home and really focus on that. And so I, I headed back to New Orleans and focused on my uh, fine art career and really had grown that into more of a business and won best of show at some of the fine art festivals in the city. And had kind of gotten my savings up to a place where I was going to either open a um, art gallery or serendipitously it became easier to kind of buy a home. Mm, nice. <laughs> and um, those, um, and through that process, really like ended up finding a home in the Bywater, which is an area outside of the French Quarter. And bike down there was sitting on the stoop and I was like what are you doing you're 23 you know the, you have an opportunity to do something more from New Orleans in the city you love and um, ended up taking that down payment and, and really starting crew and, and that was the kind of the origin story for the brand mm-hmm. oh I see you were like 23 life is slipping away <laughs> I, have to, I have to start something big I wish I had that realization at 23 <laughs> uh, so 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 yeah and and so that was 20 so 2013 then yeah, twenty. Well, that that all happened in 2012, and then we launched the brand in 2013. Right, and so obviously, I think the the brand playbook for for modern digital brands was kind of coming together. Uh, you can start online, and and then and then sort of figure out where where the brand is, go into stores potentially. Uh, so, so how did you kind of look at the landscape and say, okay, this is you know this is how I start a brand now? Like, what what was the um, strategy that you took to to get it up and running? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean. Crew was really founded on the idea of like doing something from somewhere unexpected, mm-hmm. and and in a time where there was so many brands coming online and really like trying to be something but not be from there. Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many brands in New York and L.A. and and they were even talking about other places. And we had the opportunity to really be authentic from a place and and show what a you know three hundred year old culture, you know, what we consider the most European city in America, where what what it means to be from there and what it means for design and to be a design forward brand. And um, it was definitely impacted by the digital age, as as you say, mm-hmm. but. It was really more about a place, and if you could build a brand from a place, and that was what is really exciting to us. Mm-hmm. So why why glasses and sunglasses? Um, for well, th- there was opportunity there that I I felt like I really had something where I could do the design load because I was the I still am the designer for for most of the product mm-hmm. and 
had an opportunity where I felt like we had something different to say and um, we were able to innovate and create a product that really represented you know the lifestyle of New Orleans where crew is a we're a brand without any really flashy logos so mm-hmm. people are really our brand and that's so much about what the spirit of New Orleans is and and um, eyewear was just the medium that we chose to go into that. Mm-hmm. And and as you're you're getting the brand uh, built, and you know, I'm sure talking to potential new employees and, and, and investors. Uh, I don't know has has Crew t- um, raised any money? No, we're so we've been self funded from day one. So wow. it, it was a big part of being able to do it from somewhere unexpected mm-hmm. meant you had to keep control in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm sure. So, so yeah, but uh, you know, just in talking to people, what was the kind of feedback that you got in when you were saying that, you know, I want to keep the brand here. This is a very, uh, you know, New Orleans built company. You're going to yeah. resist temptation to go elsewhere. What was, what was the response to that? Yeah. The, <laughs> it, I paused because it's, it was, it was always a question, okay, well, why not New York or LA? You know, like right. it was, it was so unexpected that people kind of questioned whether you were serious and, um, the opportunity just led to, to us being able to continue to be there. And that was so important for what we, how we wanted to grow the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, were there any difficulties, uh, in, in keeping it in New Orleans, um, or, or just sort of, you know, if, people in New York were going to go one way, you had to go another. How did you make it work? Uh, especially if when people were kind of doubting that it was, that it was serious. Yeah. I think that we just remained focused and while New Orleans is a challenge, it's also our biggest opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not, we don't really revolve around trend in the same way that um, some of our competitors do within the industry. And I think it's allowed us to create product lines and ways of doing business that are really um, unique to, to how we see the world and how we see um, our place within it. Mm-hmm. So the challenges are easy, you know, <laughs> you know capital and um, recruiting talent and just like an understanding of what it means to be um, a fashion brand and to mm-hmm. work for a fashion brand and like to know that somebody halfway across the United States or the world is working just as hard or 10 times harder than you to do the same thing. Um, but at the same time, like not being reactionary and being inspired by a place and um, the way of living in that place is, is been is really great too. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, there, there are some different ways of doing business uh, depending on where, on where you're running the brand. What are, what are some of those ways that you had, you think you had to do things a little bit differently? Well, we had to really create a lot of our own opportunity. So uh, a, a huge opportunity for us was we, we were part of the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund mm-hmm. two years ago. And, you know, we had to really show that we were, worth taking note of (laughs) in so many ways. So like uh, Vogue and CFDA have been so gracious. We were the first um, winners or runners up that wasn't from New York or LA in the 15 year history of the program. And, you know, they were supportive of the idea of brands taking place outside of the key fashion hubs. And that was really important to us because Mm -hmm. that kind of gave us both self-credibility and credibility within the market. And then exposure is a huge opportunity when you're or uh, necessary exposure is really important when you're not in the mix of it Mm -hmm. so we very early on Beyonce started wearing the brand and um, we've had a really 
cult celebrity following from the beginning, but um, it's really people like yourself and myself and, and New Orleanians that are just people that support the brand around the world now that have been the real reason why we've been able to grow. Mm-hmm. And how did you get the word out there? Uh, you know, we talk about storytelling so much and how important it is to to get the word out there, paint a picture of who the brand is, and and really sell that as much as you're selling the product. Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, on social media and all the different channels. How did you How did you sort of build that um, brand narrative from scratch? I'm sure Beyonce helped when she came <laughs> along, but <laughs> yeah. I think from the beginning it was really about design matters Mm -hmm. and design went way beyond just great looking product. It was about having quality made product and then all of our product comes with second chances. So like if you break it or somebody or you roll over it or your dog chews it, you know, we're going to replace it. And it was about you could be stylish and have really quality product at an affordable price. Mm -hmm. And outside of like brand storytelling and where we were and like all of that, that, that was the core of what I think people related to that you could have a modern fashion, fashion brand with a responsibly priced product that really you saw as a value add to your life long term, mm-hmm. And that was something that was really important for, to us from, from early on and has continued to be important to us and why we continue to invest in areas like customer service or things where, um, Maybe some other brands don't always. Right, and so, and you didn't have a background in in retail or, or branding. How did you sort of pick up all the all the skills you needed to to you know figure out how to make a quality pair of sunglasses and have good customer service and all those things that aren't that don't sound that easy. Yeah, so very early on like within the first few months of launching the brand, New Orleans is a huge festival scene Mm. and we have a lot of like music festivals and we built this like three wheeled tricycle cart (laughs) that we called the crew cart. And it was basically a mobile sunglass station. Like it it gave us the ability to go to these festivals and sell. And at that time we really learned a lot about like interacting with our consumer and what they were looking for, not both just in design, but also quality. And Mm -hmm. a lot of those lessons we learned those days impact the business today. And um, we we really call that whole channel as in-person, not (laughs) um, direct-to-consumer or retail. But it comes from a lot of the lessons we learned um, from back in those days. And then we transferred it into um, stores, and we have the tiny houses where our mobile retail. So it was really just a learning experience from day one. It sounds like a, a flexible strategy to, to getting the brand out there, um, just literally having it on wheels. And, and the, the um, talk about the store strategy then. So I feel like, you know, like, like you mentioned, there's we've seen a rush of brands that they start online, then they start to open a pop-up or two, mm-hmm. then they start to open stores. But, I, but you know, I think every every brand kind of, it's it has to suit their specific needs, even though it's kind of turned into this like modern brand playbook. So how did you go about bringing the brand offline into stores? Yeah, no. So from day one, we, we kind of realized that we had to, if we were going to remain self-funded, we have to grow in a unique way. And mm-hmm. for us, that meant like a third, a third, a third. We were going to have to do a third online, a third through wholesale, and then a third in person or direct consumer. And um, I know that our playbook at times looks very similar to others, but we kind of think of it like everything we do has to make money because we have to be cash flow positive to continue to invest in the brand and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we launched with a website and great customer service and all that stuff. And um, the crew cart, which was our ability to sell direct to consumer then turned into a pop-up in our offices and then we opened our first store and from that whole experience we realized that what we were really doing was we didn't realize we were doing at the time but we were testing the market and making sure that 
the consumers were there for a store. And Mm -hmm. with our tiny house strategy, which are these basic mobile stores on trailers, tiny house, but they look like New Orleans shotguns, which is this form of New Orleans indigenous architecture. And um, we're able to go to different markets and test those markets and see if our consumer base is there before we think about opening a store. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been a strategy for us of using mobile retail as a test before we invest into brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. And that served to be very um, important to us. And for the most part, we've kept on the track of a third, a third, a third business. So to continue to do that as we grow at an exponential rate means we do have to continue to open more stores, um, but we're trying to be as smart about it as possible. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think it makes sense. And so how do you, is mobile retail then different than a pop-up? Yeah, for us it is because, well, when I think of a pop-up, I think of like more of a trunk show or like a very short stint of time Mm -hmm. when when we think about mobile retail we're really putting like a lot of energy and team into it not that you don't with a pop-up but we want the opportunity for people to hear about it and come and repeat visitors so we Mm -hmm. try to not do anything for less than really four to six weeks at a time Mm -hmm. and right now we have two um, tiny houses in operation right now and one's been in Austin for about six months and was going to do like a seven to eight month residency. And then the other one is kind of more of on a two to three month that moving around. And those, um, I guess that's why we call it mobile retail. Yeah. And where are your permanent stores now? <laughs> uh, so we have brick and mortar here in New York and mm-hmm. Soho. And then we have two brick and mortars in New Orleans. And one of those is our flagship in the French Quarter. And one of them is um, an optical focus store on Magazine Street. And that one has an eye doctor. And it's really about us trying to change the way um, people think about interacting with the eye doctor. You can text for an appointment. You can book online. You can all really we're just trying to break the black box around how much it's going to cost, how much time you need, and really it can be a positive experience. Right. Um, yeah. How do you, how does the mobile retail side of the of the business strategy? F- do you think? And you mentioned this. You're you're testing customer you know feedback and response mm-hmm. whenever you go to a new area. So as you think about expanding the permanent store network, you know, do you think brands in general just have a smarter idea of what their stores should look like, where they should be, and you know, because I think there was this period of time where the physical stores, it's like, oh, why even carry that that burden whenever you can just be online? Now it's like, oh, wait, no, like physical stores actually help, you know, make a business run properly. So, but it seems like the new store network is going to look a lot different than than ones of the past. Yeah, I think a lot of, especially venture back brands today, see the need to have certain stores in certain markets. Mm-hmm. And our strategy has much been much more around concentric circle growth. Like we had a big footprint in New Orleans and now we're thinking about growing like into that region. Mm-hmm. And then with CFDA and the amount of time we spent in New York, we had a pretty big footprint in New York too. So we opened our second major market store here and then we have the opportunity to grow in concentric circles from there. So mm-hmm. I just think it's the poignancy of the growth and the choice, making a choice instead of having people make the choice for you kind of thing. Right. And and then uh, with the wholesale component, uh, I, that kind of feels like the last like retail pillar standing for a lot of these digitally mm-hmm. native brands. But was that part of the strategy from the, from the outset was to work with re- retailers? Yeah, it was because, I mean, r- people talk a lot about like the death of <laughs> retail, mm-hmm. not just in your own stores, but in uh, um, wholesale stores as well. But they're still brands within that or stores within that do a really good job of um, expanding, you know, 
there's really brands that give you the opportunity to reach new customers. Mm -hmm. And when we think about it on a daily basis, like the most people hearing the brand story about crew are through our wholesale partners. Mm -hmm. There's not more people coming to our website or going to our stores. There's really, that's who's seeing the most people on a daily basis. And if we can do a good job of supporting them and showing that we're partners and we want to grow together, um, and we do that through, we, we have events in the city like Crew Fat, which was actually this last weekend where we bring a lot of wholesalers and PR relations to New Orleans because when your brand is a place, you have the opportunity of bringing people to it. Um, and then we have programs within that department that are about supporting each other and growing the brand, your their store and our brand together. And I think that independent retail is still very interesting for the future mm-hmm. um, and a huge opportunity for young brands to grow with. Mm-hmm. What uh, wholesale partners do you have right now? Um, so we have about, we're in about 500 doors in the U.S. and mm-hmm. I would say 95% of those are um, independent or mom and pop st- mm-hmm. style retailers and they're the, the, the curators of new and interesting brands within their communities. And then we have um, Bloomingdale's and um, Neiman Marcus as like our big national partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also are with Solstice and they're really do give us a great opportunity to reach people that are looking for the brand in person in areas that we just wouldn't be able to reach on a daily basis. Yeah. Do you you feel like other new brands or relatively um, young brands have kind of ignored the the independent retailer, the small local retailer uh, network? Yeah, and I I honestly think that, I mean, without our independent retailers, Crew would not be Crew. I mean, they're, they're a huge part of our success and a huge part of um, the ability, again, to just tell the brand story. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because they kind of have more skin in the game than, you know, someone working a department in in a bigger national retailer that they have their own purpose there's nothing wrong with national retailers but there is definitely a different system there you have a buyer and then the buyer is giving it to the stores and Mm -hmm. the stores don't necessarily know why the buyer loves it and so it's our opportunity to do a better job there so we have um, a team member who's responsible just for national doors and going in and educating Mm -hmm. their their team on the the um on the brand itself and we try to treat them actually the same way we would treat an independent where it's like making sure that that their team on the floor understands what the brand is and what the story is. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, an an interesting piece that, that I don't think is talked about that much. So it's like boutiques, right? Yeah. Sorry. No, (laughs) Um, I don't always say the right words when I refer to, I don't come from fashion. (laughs) Mom and pop shops. That's a, that's a better word for it, I think. But, uh, so then on the, on the flip side, the, the, the smaller piece of it that is with the, with the national retailers, have you, like, as we've talked to brands who, you know, they're, you know, they, they don't want those partnerships because those department stores have big storewide promotions and you might not be featured in the store that the way you want to, the mm-hmm. buys might not reflect the broader collection. So how do you sort of deal with that, um, that bridge between whatever the, the buyer understands about the brand and then who, like this, the person on the sales floor who, who might not have gotten that connection. Totally. So crew is a brand that we don't go on sale. Mm-hmm. So like we, we as a brand from the beginning made the choice that we're not going to go on sale. And, um, that's really limited some of the conversations we're willing to have, especially with, um, national accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's limited us with some of the national accounts we're willing to go into. So it was really us having a really clear vision of who the brand wanted to be and what we were willing to do or not do from day one that 
allows us to have the hard conversations or walk away sometimes when it's not the right fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it kind of goes back to how store networks um, are getting smarter because you can test where your customer is. Like what, what people find in, in wholesale retailers is go, just going to get better because these are brands that are coming to the retailers and saying, here's what we know about our customer. Here's what we are not going to compromise on. Whereas before, your wholesale brand, you kind of don't have that that level playing field. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important that we use, so we use our e-com understanding of our consumer to mm-hmm. then inform where we need to be in wholesale doors mm-hmm. and not the other way around. So we're using all of the tools of today and all the information of today to make sure that we're making smarter decisions and giving that information to our wholesale partners to say, mm-hmm. people in your area are really drawn to non-mirrored tortoise frames right now. We yeah. should make sure that the buy is being informed by that. That's, yeah, it sounds just like retailers is, retail is getting smarter overall, so. Yeah, which is great <laughs> for everyone. And how has, so you, you haven't taken any VC funding. How has that sort of helped determine the where the brand is going to grow what this um you know three-thirds strategy for for retail is going to look like um what decisions do you think you've been able to make that maybe would have been different had you had investors kind of breathing down your neck totally i so we're we're in our sixth year now and i don't know if that third or third or third model will continue to be able to be scalable for us um especially on the investment side needed through brick and mortar expansion Mm -hmm. but um, as a whole, like I, I don't think we would be able to remain in New Orleans. I mean, we we are we're a team of like fifty plus smart creatives, and we're mostly based in New Orleans. We just opened a brand new headquarters with like a pool deck, which I don't think VC would have been cool with us spending <laughs> money on. Um, and you know, we we've we've made decisions as a brand around the things that matter to us. So that's people, quality, design, and and place. And we think that those. The way those things come out to the consumer is an authenticity that they maybe not understand inherently, but they are able to relate to. Right. And how does that um, affected the the growth trajectory? Um, obviously, we've seen a lot of brands that are really heavily VC funded. Kind of, you, you know, you have these mm-hmm. growth expectations that are. I think we're realizing now we're pretty unrealistic for any consumer brand to to you know maintain and then that changes how they spend their money on Facebook versus product right. and and their exit strategies and, and right. what the brand can really realistically do next yeah for us we haven't had to have those conversations mm-hmm. like we've been able to just do it the way we thought we should and for us that meant profitability was important from day one because like I'm not independently wealthy <laughs> the band had to be a cash flow positive brand for us to continue to grow and mm-hmm. we've been able to grow with 100% growth rates for almost five years now so making sure that we were true to like a financial structure that was right to in, in to make that growth possible and not focused on an evaluation with a burn rate was a decision that was important for us and um, we think you know, in a time where brands rise and fall really faster than ever, we mm-hmm. believe in sustainable growth as like a hedge against that. And mm-hmm. if you're really growing sustainably and you're not doing it through, you know, digital marketing or like you're really doing it through word of mouth brand growth, that kind of brand growth hopefully will be a lot more sustainable long term than um, some other forms we've seen here of late. Right. And so how does has that shaped your marketing strategy? Because I feel like there must be some 
temptation or just, you know, acknowledgement that there is a lot of noise online and the best way to cut through it is to kind of throw money at it. So how how do you go about it without doing that? Yeah. (laughs) Online mesmerizes me, (laughs) first (laughs) off. Like the things that work and don't work, they don't like all make sense to me. I'm sure. Um, But we've been really clear on like what we're willing to spend and then if you have a pool of money and it's like well we just have this much well what what's the most authentic way for us to continue to tell the story because Mm -hmm. we believe that our story is worth um investing in so it's it's less about um really trying to grasp a new consumer based on price or discount because that's what a lot of these brands are doing Mm -hmm. and really trying to grasp a new consumer through word of mouth or um, more importantly like why the quality of the product is important and why like design while is super important is you know justified by the quality and what you're going to get long term right so how do you measure word of mouth though how do you do you ask we, we do how it they get there? yeah we do it through net promoter score which is pretty much the industry a- average mm-hmm. in our standard and um net promoter score for us i'm sure you know is um uh how likely you would to be to recommend the product or service to a friend right? and anything over, I believe an eight or seven or eight is a promoter and or, yeah, eight and above is a promoter. Six and seven is neutral. And then everything under is a detractor. You might have to fact check me on that. <laughs> yeah, sounds right. <laughs> um, but um, that's been hugely important for us from day one because not just all three of our channels are in the high Mm nineties, but it also gives us an opportunity to understand when something did go wrong, what the consumer thought, how it went wrong and how can we be better next time? Mm So tracking that for, um, I guess almost three years now has been really important to us. Mm -hmm. And where else, where are you investing um, your marketing dollars when it, when you, when you have them to spend? Yeah, we're mostly investing in people. So we believe that, you know, great people, will create great opportunities and, and continue to grow the brand mm-hmm. um, on a on a actual marketing spend side we do invest a good bit on online and then we invest a good bit with our partners so like our wholesale partners mm-hmm. um, and then we invest around our brick and mortar so that we um, are continue to grow brand awareness so it's it's not a um, silver bullet strategy where we're like really pumping money into one area. I mean, right. marketing is so much about all of these things coming together. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing that shift towards diversification, just kind of spread it out and, and then it will all rise together. Um, when you say people, you mean like, um, influencers? Uh, no, we're, we've never been a pay to play brand mm-hmm. that hasn't been part of our strategy or where we pay people to wear the product. Mm-hmm. Um, more in like the marketing team and mm-hmm. in making sure that we are, we have an in-house photographer, we have an in-house creative director, we have a in-house uh, director or VP of marketing. So really people that are around doing we think that we can be smarter with less money and that gives us the opportunity to be better and like cut through the clutter. Right. Cause so many people have a ton of money that they're willing to throw at the pro- problem and try to solve it that way. And mm-hmm. well, if we don't have that, we can probably do it better. Right. So you've invested in the in-house team. Um, what about outside like agency partners? Are they important? Y- yeah. We outside agency partners, especially in, um, press and media has been really important to us for a long time now because that's an area where we don't have the connections in New Orleans mm-hmm. and you really need to be based in New York and LA and having right. the right partners in those cities or even like London is a huge part of um, the brand's growth ability. Oh, nice. And so 
so it's kind of outsourced where where you know you're you're kind of missing the connections, but still building a strong in-house team that can make the right like internal decisions. Yeah, and we think of our partners in that arena really as part of the team. We set goals and we evaluate each other on the same way we would evaluate each other internally, and that's been a big part of our success, I think, there. And how do you think all of this ladders up to the brand's ability to have longevity? Uh, I, th- I think, you know, the a lot of the, the trappings of, of being an online brand is just this fire flash in the pan mm-hmm. uh, strategy where you might have seen a ton of Facebook ads, but then you're like, oh, whatever happened to them? Like, how do you want to make a long lasting brand based on, on everything we've talked about? Yeah. I, for us, a long lasting brand is like a brand that's not based on trend. Mm-hmm. And when we think of like, we definitely have products that are like St. Louis is pretty iconic for us now, which is a kind of a round P3 style sunglass that was really based on the wrought iron architecture of the French Quarter in New Orleans. And that was one of the first cues that really gave us exposure into a bigger audience. Um, but we continue to see customers come back at a rate of about 30 to 40% that are returning to buy another pair with us or using their second chances to make sure that they um, replace the pair that got damaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and through that, we've, we we think we're growing a brand that people see long-term value in. And um, we love interacting with our, our, our consumers, not just online but also in in person mm-hmm. and and when we do interact with them or when we get net promoter scores or their feedback it's um trying to see what they want and continuing to grow what they they want to see out of the brand um that gives us faith that we'll be around for a long time right and it seems like you know also just having things that you're not willing to compromise on absolutely yeah that's probably better said um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so how, and but keeping that in mind how do you go about designing product I think you know newness and speed to market is something we hear about a lot like in in terms of reacting to what you are hearing from customers and being able to then like you know hit hit a trend really quickly or or understand what people want from the brand how do you sort of um you know work between the two of of having more timely product that's not trend driven while still being in touch with what, what customers want yeah absolutely so I mean a lot of my friends especially in ready to wear where they're moving towards less on seasons and more like uh, like 10 drops a year like 8 right. to 10 drops and and that gives them the ability to really stay focused on some of their core product and then continue to add newness for us and eyewear um, for about two years now we've been launching product almost every two weeks mm-hmm. so that gives us the opportunity to talk to the consumer more often so that we're not marketing as you were questioning earlier, like just the same thing over and over again, but we actually have new unique product that's worth talking about. Mm -hmm. And for us with that launch schedule, obviously it creates manufacturing challenges, but it also is really liberating in a lot of ways, especially on the design side, because you're able to create collections that are kind of more fluid, but together, Mm -hmm. you know, they have, they have a perspective that um, when you walk into one of our stores, I think you look at everything on the shelves and you're like, oh, this is one brand, even though there is a totally different, there, there's a lot of different shapes and a lot of different perspectives across it. So um, every two weeks means that we're either going to launch a new frame or a new colorway within a frame family or 
you know, we, we're relatively limited production. Everything's handmade and in small batch. So things sell out fast. And that might mean that something's coming back in stock even. Mm-hmm. So, so using product kind of as a, as a tool not to give in to trends, but have something to talk about and, and share with, with customers. Yeah. Uh, u- using product as um, the opportunity to continue to to connect with our customers in a way that um, is valuable. Mm-hmm. How do you? How are you keeping um, an eye on like competitive brands and and making sure you're differentiating? Yeah, I'm sure. Have you you've been compared to Orby Parker? Uh, not not as much. I mean, what Neil and them are doing is is nothing short of amazing. But it's a totally different market than mm-hmm. us. It's it's much lower price point and, mm-hmm. and much more utilitarian. I think. Right. Yeah. So how do you? Um, you know, work, work that, you know, why, why shop crew into the, into the equation of how, when you're talking to customers? Yeah. I, I think it comes back to we're a design driven brand mm-hmm. that really cares about quality and the level of design and detail. And then on top of that, you're going to have long lasting, great customer service and great longevity of the product. And if something does go wrong, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And outside of that, you know, being in New Orleans, that's the blessing. You're not driven by trend. You're not like you don't see what other people are doing unless you actively are looking for it. So it gives us the ability to design collections that are really true to ourselves or what we're interested in in that moment and be less reactionary to what is of the moment. Right. And we're nearing the end of the year and you're about five years in. So, so starting the second half of the the 10 year milestone, (laughs) what are you, what's, what's, um, you know, top of mind for you right now? Um, you know, well, so many things <laughs> in, in regards to the business, not election day or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was talking about. Um, I, for us, continuing to recruit great talent to mm-hmm. New Orleans and growing sustainably from New Orleans is extremely important. Um, continuing to focus on design-driven quality products that relate to our customers is super important. And when people are your brand, as I said, it's like making sure that they have the opportunity to continue to talk about you. And those are the kind of the areas that are really important. And we see ourselves as our own customers sometimes too. So make sure that we're investing in the way that we communicate inside the company, not just to ourselves, but also to our partners and then to our consumers are all areas that are really top of mind focuses as we go into 2019 and mm-hmm. 2020. Makes sense. Great. And uh, what's your New Orleans pitch for jaded New, New Yorkers who need uh, some convincing? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> on why to come to New Orleans? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, other than in the winter, it's like 72 and sunny, <laughs> <It's so hard. laughs> you know, like it's not very hard after that, but right. no, it's a, it's a great place to visit. And, um, it's the most European city in America, you know, and it, it is, it is a place where you're allowed to be yourself and nobody's going to judge and it's super friendly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sterling, for coming in. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. The Glossy Podcast will be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying the Glossy podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code podcast at glossy.co slash plus to get 20% off an annual subscription. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.